Father, thank you for the blessing, the many blessings you give us in this church. This morning, Father, we go into your word with the hopeful expectation that not only may we learn something and be challenged by what we learn, but that we would hear from you personally in our lives and that what we would take out of this morning, Father, would cause us to live a life that is more pleasing to you. That's our prayer, Father. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are at chapter 25, so if you're good with math, even if you're not very good with math, you would calculate we're halfway through the book of Genesis, which has 50 chapters. So that's a point of celebration, I think, all by itself. Please don't celebrate in my presence, but when I'm gone, feel free to, to enjoy the fact that we're halfway done with Genesis. I don't know how long we've been in this book now. I haven't kind of lost track of that. Cindy, tell me, when did we start? January 20, 2011, beginning of the year. Well, you know, that's not too bad. We're probably about 15 months now into the study. Please don't laugh. This is probably the fourth time I've taught through the book of Genesis, and it's run this way virtually every time, where the first 25 chapters take the better part of a year to a little longer, and then the last half of the book wraps up in six months. And that's happened every time I've taught it. And the reason is not so much because of what I do in the text. It's the nature of the narrative. In the first half of the book, there are a lot of things being established, not the least of which is creation itself and the nations of the world and so on. But as we get past the story of Abraham and into the story now of his sons, and in particularly three men now become the focus through the rest of the book, like any good drama, the pace picks up and the stories start to move more quickly. And so as a result, the themes come more quickly and we can progress as well. For example, we've already studied in the first half of this book the life of Abraham. In fact, in today's chapter, he dies. So we put an end to his life in the text today. We've already begun the story of Isaac to a large extent. We've met him. We know His purpose in being in the land now is to be the the next in line. He'll be the next patriarch. And, of course, he's already married. And in this chapter, he's going to receive his first children, his two boys, twins. And before this chapter is over, we will be embroiled deeply in the most important theme of the book of Genesis and one that will become very prominent in the second half. And that is the question of who is the promised child? It was an issue for Abraham with Ishmael versus Isaac. But it'll become an even greater focus in the story going forward. So much so that truly understanding the nature of birthright and of the seed promise will determine everything going forward in the book. Everything in the story of Genesis now is on that point and that point alone, along with some sub themes. But that's the main issue. So before this chapter is out, we will have moved into that conversation and we will watch it play out over the lives of Isaac, then Jacob and finally Joseph. And along the way, we'll learn about how this seed promise is influencing the lives of the people God is calling. But first, before we do any of that, Moses has some loose ends he wants to tie up. So the story opens here with the way Abraham's life comes to an end and some of his immediate family. Verse 1 of chapter 25 is where we begin, so open with me there. Now Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran and Jokshan, Medan, Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letishim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephath, Ephur, Hanak, Abidah, Eldaha. These were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. 
and sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the land of the east. Sometime after Sarah's death, which we've read about a few chapters back, he comes to be remarried. He marries his second wife named Keturah. Abraham lived 38 years after Sarah died, which was plenty of time, of course, for him to marry. And as the text shows us, to father six more sons and some unknown number of women, daughters along the way, we assume. He marries Keturah. Her name means perfume or incense. But in verse 6, we're told she is a concubine, as Hagar was. That's why verse 6 says concubines. It's referencing Hagar from the past. Concubines are slave women, women who belonged to Abraham. Abraham was their master, but he chose to marry. In the case of Hagar, we know that story already. Here he's done the same thing again now without Sarah in the process. He's decided that one of his concubines he wanted to marry and now give him more children. When a woman who is a slave marries her master, that does not change her slave status. She remains a slave. For some men, that's how they treat their wives, unfortunately. But in this case, it's literally the way it is. It's literally the law. So though she now has a higher status in the household by virtue of being married, it does not erase her status as slave. That's the reason we have the word concubine in Scripture. Concubine is the word used for a slave who is married to her master. And in this case, it also affects the relationship that those children have with the master. It's the same plight that we saw earlier with Ishmael. The children of a slave woman, are slave children. And as such, they do not have the same status in the household that Abraham's proper children would. Isaac, we're talking here, the child that is not of a slave woman. And so they do not have inheritance rights either. Remember God's promises to Abraham? God's promises to him, going back to the original covenant that he heard when he left the land of Ur, were that he would be a great nation of people, that from him nations would come, and that he would be blessed. And that those who blessed him would be blessed and those who cursed him would be cursed. And that he would have an inheritance in the land and that he would have this great name. These were all the components of that promise. God's promise was unconditional. It didn't come with any strings attached. It didn't say these promises will only come true for you if. No, they were just presented to Abraham as God's grace. So no matter who Abraham marries, no matter how many children he fathers, they must all be incorporated into this promise to a degree that they would all be blessed individually. The sons would be men who could then find nations coming from them. And that's why when we look at the list of names here, these men coming from the woman Keturah will share in those blessings. They are all men who eventually become fathers of nations of Arabs. But there is a component to the promise of the Abrahamic covenant which does not transfer universally. Though those sons would have blessing, though Ishmael, for that matter, had blessing. Blessing because of God's unconditional promise. Those blessings stopped in that first generation. There was not an ongoing blessing. There was not the continuance of God's promises into the second and third and fourth generation for those that were not designated by God as the seed child. They simply saw, by virtue of their relationship to Abraham, the residual of the blessing. They saw their own lives blessed, but then it stopped. And their families had nothing more to claim out of that promise. But the child who would receive the seed promise, if you've been with us since the beginning of this book, then you know what I'm referring to when I say the seed promise. This is the promise that God gave that through Abraham, a savior 
would come out of that line that God designated, and through that line, through that Savior that comes, the world would find salvation. Abraham would be the father of a nation who itself would give birth to the Messiah who would then save the world. That part of the promise, that most important part, was not something shared by all of Abraham's descendants. Paul gives us this so clearly in New Testament theology, particularly in Galatians, that there would be one, one child through whom that promise would continue. And in each new generation, yet again, one child, only one, would be designated to carry that promise forward. Isaac was the one that God said to Abraham would be the child to carry that seed promise forward. So Isaac gets a unique blessing. He not only has the blessing of being associated with his father, he receives his father's entire inheritance. That's the meaning of what we read when it says in chapter 25 that Abraham gave everything that he had to Isaac. Isaac is the only one who inherits from Abraham. But it also means that Isaac will carry this promise forward so that one of his children will perpetuate this promise forward into history. None of the other sons will be able to say that to one of their children. So God is providing this list of names and then bringing the list to an end so that these names are never mentioned again in the record of Genesis so that we can understand they are not part of the story. They, they are coming to an end here. God is cutting them off. And what will emerge out of chapter 25 is only the story of Isaac and his children. Because the purpose of Genesis is to follow that seed promise all the way and let the other detours, the other exits off, off of that highway come to their natural end, and then be put aside. So Isaac is the seed promise. He's the one God chose. And as with Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham understands that. Let's look at the list for a moment before we look at what Abraham does. Abraham has six sons, as we said, from Keturah. Of those names listed, we can find evidence even today of six Arabian nations that come from these people, that the names of these people correspond to tribes in Arabia, even to today, the, the ancient names that are still held in many places there today. Collectively, though, they become the forerunner of the Arabs, along with Ishmael and his family. Remember, Ishmael alone was promised to have 12 sons who would become 12 tribes in Arabia. So collectively, Abraham birthed or fathered all of the Arabs of the world. But he also was the father of all the Jews in the world. Those two groups of people are the Semitic people. So Abraham is the father of all Semites. And yet by God's pronouncement, the brothers of Isaac, those who come out of Ishmael and those who now come out of Keturah, will be set against the descendants of Isaac. One group of people, the Arabs, would be by God's design intended to cause grief to those of Israel. They become the foil. They become the enemy of Israel to chastise and discipline them according to God's purposes. Here we see it beginning. One of the names, by the way, is Midian. I mention that only because Moses would have been particularly interested in that name as he wrote this story. Midian was the place that Moses spent 40 years of his life and found his wife before he was called back into Egypt to rescue the people of Israel. So I'm sure as he wrote this, he was particularly interested in making clear where the Midianites settled, which is in Arabia as well. The key is verse 5. Everything God gave Abraham was transferred to Isaac. And he did it before he died to assure that the wealth went to Isaac and to no one else. Only Isaac would be his heir. He does send his concubine and her sons away with at least gifts so that they have something to sustain themselves. But the point of that was to make clear, you have no part in my inheritance 
and I want to separate while I'm still alive so that there would be no fighting later, no disputes about the inheritance. It's all clear right away. Remember the story that we taught in chapter 24 in which Abraham was the picture of the father. Our father in heaven has only one begotten son. Isaac was a picture of the son of Christ. According to God's promises, Abraham also has only one son of promise. And all that is his becomes that son's. Isaac, the child of promise, is going to receive all that was Abraham's. And Abraham here is fulfilling that picture in the way he gives to his one son everything. But he doesn't have it yet. You notice that the concubines and their sons receive their portion, their gifts, while Abraham is still alive. But you don't hear of him saying, now I give to Isaac all of my inheritance while I'm still alive. That did not happen. That awaits for his death. Because Isaac could not receive the inheritance until after the death of his father. There's a famous story in the New Testament about a boy who would dare to ask his father for his inheritance prior to his father's death. And we all know that story, right? The prodigal son story. And what made it so shameful for the son to do what he did was that by asking in advance for the inheritance, he was saying to his dad, you're as good as dead to me. I think of you as dead. That's what made it so scandalous. But among those who have better principles, you would never think to do that. And that's how an inheritance works by law, by how we all understand it. You cannot receive your inheritance until the one who has granted it is dead. And therefore, Abraham gives to Keturah gifts in advance and to her sons gifts in advance to make clear this is not an inheritance because I'm still alive. It's a gift. The inheritance given to Isaac when it came included Abraham's vast wealth, which he's amassed over many years. But more important than the wealth, it included the right to the promise that had been given to him by God. God gave Abraham this special set of promises found in the Abrahamic covenant, which we can begin to now call with a single word, the birthright. God made these promises to Abraham, but he also made them to Abraham's descendants. You and your descendants. But it was understood that those promises would only transfer to this certain descendant that God chose in each generation. Many are confused in my experience about the nature of the birthright and its relationship to the inheritance. Are they one and the same? Is it really two words that mean the same thing? Or are they different? How are they different? Understanding that is critical to appreciating what God begins to do through the lives of men like Jacob versus Esau. Just as God chose Abraham in the first place, Abraham didn't sign up to be the nation of Israel. He didn't go and apply for the job. God selected him when Abraham did not know him and appointed him to this future. Similarly, God is going to continue to designate by his sovereign grace who will receive this birthright in successive generations. And as we studied earlier in Genesis, God made clear in the case of Isaac that he would be the child of promise. He would be the one to receive the birthright. He would be the one to take it forward. But that was done in the face of another, that being Ishmael, who the world would have said was the better choice. Anyone you would have asked in Abraham's day, including Abraham himself, would have said to us that the proper and right thing for God to do was to assign the birthright and the promise to Ishmael. After all, he was the firstborn of Abraham. And as the firstborn son, 
he had the right and privilege to receive the greater inheritance, to receive the birthright. By the wisdom of men, by the customs of the day, Ishmael was the guy. Remember Abraham's own response when he's told by God that, no, it won't be Ishmael. It's going to be another boy, one that's coming from your flesh and from Sarah. Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. Meaning, oh, no, God, that can't be right. It must be this one. God would never permit that the wisdom and the customs of men would override the choice of God. He will never permit that. In fact, quite the opposite. He goes out of his way to run contrary to the expectations of men to make a point. The promises of God in Scripture are always a testimony to his grace, to his mercy, but also to his sovereignty. They go hand in hand. There, there is no separating God from his grace. There's no separating God from his mercy, nor can there be a separation of God from his sovereignty. No more than he can act wickedly. No more than he can try to sin. No more than he can try to go back on his word. No more than those things could God cease to be sovereign. As such, then, God's promises rest on those he chooses. In the first three generations after Abraham, God is going to be careful to demonstrate over and over again that he is the one who chooses the recipients of his grace. And the clearest way God can show us this is he is going to continue time after time to choose the one you don't expect. And not just the one you don't expect, to choose the one the world would say shouldn't get it. By the way, he does this in other contexts, not only in the context of this promise and of this inheritance, of this birthright, but he does it in the way that kings are selected in the nation of Israel. When it was time for Israel to select a king and they demanded one and God relented and allowed them to have one, though he said it was a bad idea, he let them pick the one they thought would be best, the tallest, best-looking, strongest warrior in Israel, Saul. And they suffered for that choice. Then God says, now let me show you how we pick kings. And when it was time to pick Saul's successor... He went to a young teen shepherd boy, the youngest in his family, and said, that will be my king. And when he did it, even the prophet Samuel, who was the one designated by God to anoint this king, questioned whether that was actually what God wanted. Wondering, why wasn't the first son of Jesse? Why wasn't the second son? Why wasn't it the third son? Why is it the last and the youngest? Well, the point is so that you know it's only by God's choice. Not by the way men think, not by our assigning of a birthright according to custom or human wisdom. For Abraham, he was surprised to find that in the old age that he and Sarah shared, that they would have their own child and that that would be the one. Ishmael was not to be the one. But think about it. Ishmael was a child of flesh, like we discussed back in that time of Genesis. He was the product of human work and ultimately human sin. God's mercy does not come to those who work but to those who have faith in God's work. And so the promised child, the one who would receive the Abrahamic covenant, the birthright, was to be a child that God created alone, Isaac, according to God's will. And he is still moving this promise forward, this blessing from generation to generation in the same fashion. Hebrews explains it this way, and I love the way Hebrews elaborates on this from a point of view that we all can share in. That is, the point of view of an inheritance that comes out of a will like your last will and testament. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place 
for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must by necessity be the death of the one who made it, for a covenant is only valid after men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. The writer says those who have been called by God are the ones to receive the promise of internal inheritance. That's the same kind of promise that was given to Abraham. Abraham's promise is the basis for the covenant that God made through Christ. That fulfillment, the fulfillment of that covenant in Christ comes through his blood. When Christ said, if you believe in me, you shall never die, but have eternal life. The effect of that, the truth of that became evident in his blood. For until he died, that statement could not be true. So the covenant that Christ gave us, which finds its source in the promises God gave Abraham, did not become effective until Christ died, until his blood was shed for sin. And then the writer makes this very interesting, fascinating comparison. He says, where there is a covenant, there must by necessity be death. But the word covenant in Greek Diatheke in Greek, it's literally the word for testament or will, last will and testament. You can substitute the word will there. So you could say where there is a last will and testament, there must by necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a will is not valid until men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. That's what he's saying. So the person who makes the will is the one who makes a determination in advance of their death. Of who will receive their inheritance. Isn't that the way we do it? You certainly can't do it after you're dead. And when you designate who will receive your inheritance, most people don't ask in advance, would you like it? Generally speaking, we don't go around in advance wondering if you're willing to accept the inheritance. We just write the names down and we trust that after we're gone and that will is read, that the people who are being awarded the inheritance will accept it gladly and thankfully. But the point is, the way a will works is that people are designated by the one giving the inheritance and they receive what they receive upon the death of the one who made the designation. The writer in Hebrews says that there is a covenant or there is a will that Christ made, but that it took effect in his death. And that covenant could only be valid if he died, which was the necessity of his death. So the covenant that was made with Abraham was, in a sense, the last will and testament of God in that it would be fulfilled by the death of God in Christ. Think about the terms of it. It promised Abraham an inheritance, a permanent inheritance in the land that would be his. We know already Abraham did not receive that, never to have received it while he lived. Are we to say here this morning that God is not faithful then to his promises? God promised Abraham he would have the land, the entirety of the land of Israel, for an eternity. But he didn't get it before he died. But now we understand that he couldn't have it until the one who made the covenant died. And then that last will and testament of God would go into effect through the blood of Christ. And then in some day to come, Abraham will receive that inheritance in a resurrected life when he walks this earth again, as we all will, in our new bodies. When Christ died, his will went into effect, and those promises now that God is making to Abraham and transferring down the line through the seed promise will eventually come to effect for all who receive it. 
In Abraham's day, it was him and his son and his son's son and so on. In our day today, it's a promise being given to the world through the gospel. All who accept it are included. We're grafted in to these promises and receive some measure of inheritance. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 1, verse 9. Speaking of the Father, he says, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained, look, we have obtained an inheritance. That word in Greek is past tense, just like it is in our English. We obtained an inheritance. How did we obtain it? We obtained it in the death of Christ. Can an inheritance be granted, but yet those who are to receive it not take possession of it right away? It happens all the time. God's purpose and the way he provided for us is that Christ's death would open the door for the opportunity into an inheritance. But the day we receive it is a day yet to come. But it's just as assured now as it will be when we have it in our hands. It's just spoken of in the past tense to reiterate it's already a done deal. The one who made the will is gone. He has died and has been resurrected. Paul goes on in verse 11 to say, also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So, folks, you and I are, in a sense, just like Isaac in the ways that matter most. We're just like Isaac. We are the recipients of God's grace, according to his gracious choice, and destined to receive an inheritance as a result. In fact, we have already received, God says through Ephesians, a down payment on that very inheritance in the form of a pledge God made to us by his depositing of the Holy Spirit in each of us. That's a valuable Deposit, more so than I think we can possibly imagine. We have now, as a result of his deposit in our lives, in our bodies, we have access to the wisdom and power of God. And that is no small matter. Now, if that's a down payment, if God calls his own spirit a down payment on an internal inheritance, how much greater will the inheritance be if his spirit is merely a down payment? But have you noticed that not everyone who gets a great inheritance knows what to do with it or how to use it properly. There's all that hoopla this week over the lottery. I found a lot of interesting storylines about the lottery on news sites this week. A lot of interesting stories come up when you're seeing that much interest in something like the lottery. And one of the stories that really caught my attention was a story about what happens to people who win the big lotteries, the ones that are like, you know, triple digits and bigger. Whatever happens to those people. And you can probably guess, right? There was one guy who won well over $100 million, I can't remember, $150 or $60 million. And within three years, the guy was in jail for writing personal checks that bounced. How do you do that? I don't know how you spend money that fast. I've tried. Trust me. I don't know how you can do it. Another guy, sadly, committed suicide. Others in that story fell into addictions. They were embroiled in endless court battles with family members trying to take the money or claim the money or say they were cheated out of money. Many had been defrauded by con man. One guy lost $500,000 one night in a strip club. Well, 
put two and two together there, right? What were you doing there? So not everyone who receives a great inheritance has the wisdom and has the character to handle it. And not every Christian who has received the grace of God and received the down payment of the Holy Spirit knows how to handle that well either. How to respond to those riches in the proper way. And some will abuse the grace of God. Some will use it as a license to go on sinning. Paul calls it licentiousness. That's where the word comes from. It means license to sin. Because they know that by grace they've been saved, their works did not produce their salvation, and therefore their works cannot undo their salvation. Glory be to God. But that doesn't mean that they aren't putting something at risk. Others may even choose to ignore or even doubt their inheritance, though they have evidence of it through the Spirit. Folks, God's promises and our inheritance are not in doubt. It's not like winning the lottery where the chances are better of being struck by lightning, as they say, than actually receiving them. By the way, that was another story I read. This is a true story yesterday. A Kansas man was struck by lightning hours after playing the Mega Millions lottery ticket. Providing in real life the old saying that a gambler is more likely to be struck down from the sky than win the jackpot. Bill Isles, 48, bought three tickets in the record lottery Thursday. On the way to the car, he said to a friend, I've got a better chance of getting struck by lightning than winning the lottery. God was listening. Later at about 9.30 p.m., while standing in the backyard of his Wichita duplex, he saw a flash, heard a boom, threw me to the ground quivering, he said, scrambled my brains and gave me an irregular heartbeat. I'm not laughing at his predicament. I'm laughing at God's sense of humor. (laughs) While we wait to receive this inheritance that has already been obtained, we're told, past tense, let's do our best in the short time we have on this earth to honor it by our obedience to the Father and through a recognition that that responsibility comes with it, that responsibility to do with what we've been given, what God is asking us to do, to care over it. And I'm not just talking here about some physical inheritance. I'm talking about the spiritual inheritance of a walk with Christ, of the companionship of the Spirit, the opportunity to testify to our faith, to bring others along with us as God permits, to have pleased the Master in the day of our judgment. Scripture teaches that we may see our eternal reward diminished or increased according to how we serve the Lord. Jesus says it so frankly in two different verses. In Luke 16, 10, he says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If you're the kind who takes what God's given and the grace that he's offered and you turn it back upon him by choosing to live a life that doesn't glorify him. The writer of Hebrews says that if we have trampled the blood of Christ, that we have nothing to look forward to except the fear of falling into the hands of the living God. He says that moment of redemption, the moment of salvation that brought you to repentance and brought you to that tearful understanding of your sin and a willingness to do better, that moment, the writer of Hebrews says, cannot be repeated. No one gets saved twice. And so if we've gone through that moment and come out the other side with a heart that says, I want to be the person God's now made me to be, and we let that slip away, the writer says there's no guarantee it comes back. We may just slip away with it into a life of disobedience that ends up in the grave with regrets. Not that our salvation will ever go away, but that what we are putting at risk is something that is still important. Matthew twenty-five twenty-nine, Jesus says, For to everyone who has, more shall be given. 
and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. That verse is in the context of eternal reward. It's talking about those who have been granted an inheritance by the Father, but squander through their life's choices what he has allotted for them. will see that taken away and handed to those who are faithful. This is God's system of accounting. This is how he assigns eternal reward. This is how he shows his love to his children. But it's also how he will show distinction in the eternal realm among those who are faithful servants and those who had other things to do. I think as a pastor, I have two choices every time I preach. I can favor the parts of Scripture that lead us to a hopeful understanding of what God has done for us in salvation. And I should. But I can also illustrate the sincere and serious call that comes with it on the life of every Christian to live up to the salvation that has already been granted. And I think I'm supposed to do that too. Because I know that if I only taught of the joy we have in Christ, as hopeful as that is, as important as that is, it's the basis for everything. If it's not followed with a call to live according to it, then I'm fooling us. I'm fooling myself most of all. Because every decision, every action we take to serve Christ or to avoid that service has an impact on eternity. And remember, we're not working for the praises of men. We're not working so that God can give us comfort in this life. We're working for the praises of the Lord in heaven and for a reward that is eternal and cannot perish. We're going to study much more about the importance of the birthright and the inheritance in coming weeks. But I want to read out through chapter 25, verse 18, without commentary for the most part, because it's a genealogy of his descendants outside of Isaac. But I want to attend to it today, and that leaves us with Isaac in view the next time we come back into the text. Read with me in chapter 25, verse 7. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with, his, with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived in Beer the High Roy. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Neboeth, the first son of Ishmael, Kedar, and Abiel, and Mibsah, and Mishmah, and Dumah, and Massah, Hadah, and Tamah, Jetur, Nafish, and Nafish, that's a bad name in my book, Nafish, and Kedamah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. So Abraham, we're told, lived 175 years before he died. You'll remember when we discussed this in the time of the flood. These are literal, literal descriptions of age. He lived about 100 years longer than his normal life expectancy for men today and for all the reasons we studied back in the study of Noah. More importantly, we're told, Abraham was satisfied with his life. Satisfied. 
We know he was incredibly blessed by God. But do you think that's what made him satisfied? Well, let's contrast his situation in his last days with those of another very rich man in Scripture, Solomon. Out of 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations, concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. I think it's safe to say Abraham's contentment was created not by his earthly riches, Instead, it was by knowing that God's promises were everlasting and his faithfulness was without limits and he had lived a life that pleased the Lord. In ministry, you'll have a chance at times to engage with people who are suffering through a death in the family, to counsel them on their deathbed or to counsel family members after the death. And I will tell you that I never hear in the moment when life is coming to an end They're always wishing for things they didn't chase after. It's as if in those last moments of life, we finally understand what life's about. Abraham understood that his purpose in life was to be a testimony to God. He was first and foremost righteous before God because of his faith in God's promises. Secondly, he lived a life that was a testimony to that faith. And third, by that testimony, he could die confident in his inheritance. So if you want to say that he looked upon life with satisfaction because of wealth, you'd be right. Just make sure you know you're talking about the wealth that he stored up in heaven. Not the one he left behind on earth. As we'll study next week, he transferred that blessing to Isaac. Heavenly Father, you know in our hearts, Father, that we rejoice in the salvation we have by faith. And if it were possible, Father... That would be the only message we'd ever care to hear. Because it would ignore the truth of our sinful state and give us reason to overlook the things in life that need to change. And on the other hand, Father, if all we ever thought about was our sin before you and the struggles that we endure every day, we wouldn't have the hope to confront them. But in your grace and in your wisdom, Father, you have shown us both that not by our work, but by yours, not by our might, but by yours, Not by our decisions and will, but by yours. We have been brought into the family of God. And with that comes an eternal hope that nothing can remove. And then, Father, you were wise to show us that there is yet still reason to devote ourselves fully to following you in faith, to working out our salvation, as you say. Because if we were to sit still in the place you found us, Our salvation would be assured, but our inheritance would be at risk. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement in Scripture, the exhortation, the challenge, and the conviction to cause us to rethink every decision. Father, I ask that you would give us the chance to have a testimony like Abraham, that in our last days we would would come into your presence satisfied in life, 
and for all the right reasons. Thank you, Lord, that we could celebrate a sacrament yesterday in baptism and then follow it today with the sacrament of communion. Because in these two simple ways, Father, we continue to show obedience. Let it be the start of many more ways for each of us. And I thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church, Father. I thank you every week, and I will continue to thank you for the grace and the blessing that it is to be a part of a small group that knows you and follows you and cares to to do better in both. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.